this could go bad. But we'll see. Trevor's already broken that ice today, so it's okay. So still, I bring this up time and time again, and if you have a history at Sonoma downtown, you might be like, Kent, you've got to get over the sense of always talking about the endless desire for a person to know God's will for their life. But it's still probably the number one conversation I have. And first of all, as I always go to and always talk to in this conversation, always we want to know what is God's will for my life when it comes to those major life decisions that you make of like six of them over the course of your life where the scriptures are abundantly clear, they're much less concerned about those six decisions you make and more about the 99.9 decisions you make every single day of your life. And that God's will for your life is very much so. It's not to say he doesn't care what city you're in, what job you're in, what marriage you're in, but he's simply saying there's so much more about my will for your life that happens just in choosing to forgive and let go of bitterness and choosing to hold on to a heart that is grateful for the grace that you have been shown. And then taking that grace and extending it to others. And by definition, grace can only be extended when it is not deserved. There's so much more to that that he is concerned about when it comes to knowing his will for your life. And it has been revealed. But regardless, there still is that sense of like, well, then what do I do with the major decisions? What do I do with the with the big turning points of life. And I think as I have that conversation, I hear in it a sense of, because people are saying, I don't want to step out of bounds. I don't want to step off this trajectory that God has for me. And I think, first of all, it's a flawed concept, because it's, again, overwhelmingly limited to what God is actually doing in your life. But it's also in there to the assumption that if I am perfectly on the little fidelity green line of God's will for my life the entire time from birth to death, that I won't experience missing out. I won't experience suffering and rejection. Where there's a whole lot of Bible, and we're going to read a whole lot of Bible to, to disabuse us of that notion. But we'll get into that here as we do in Acts 6 through the end of 7, eventually is what I'm going to read. This is the conclusion of the first act of Acts, and I am self-conscious to the fact that I'm going to be now several times referring to the word act as a concept and the book of Acts as a book. Try to keep up with that S or no S, but... I am a student over my life of writing, and I've studied screenwriting, I've uh, studied creative writing in lots of different facets. And there is obviously something famously known in uh, film, uh, American film, as three-act structure. And then historically, we uh, see that more in five-act structure. If you think any Shakespearean tragedy or comedy, it is always in five acts. And regardless, in three-act or five-act structure, the first act of anything is trying to set up all of the elements. We're setting up the antagonist, the protagonist. We're setting up the setting. We're setting up the problem. We're setting up all of the pieces. And so there is a point in a film when you're watching where everything is set up, and you know when you're exiting the first act in a third act structure or in a five act structure because there happens to be an inciting incident. Or as they say, when you're setting, 
a character passes, a character or characters pass through a door in which they cannot turn around and go back through. At that moment, you've put them in a situation that there is no turning back. The only way out is through. And that's precisely what is happening here in the early church. Let's read verse, or chapter 6, verse 8, and we'll just go through the end of 6 here and we'll pause. It says, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Sicilia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard from him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witness who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So as a good transition piece in the end of Acts 1, it is essentially reminding you of all the major components up through the first seven chapters, or the first six chapters of Acts. The first six chapters of Acts, we've seen the establishment of Jesus to his church, saying, hey, I'm leaving, but I'm going to do greater things through you. As I leave, I'm given all authority, and with that authority, I'm pouring out my spirit on you, the church of God, to continue the act of what I have been doing in my Gospels when I laid out my kingdom and I brought it. And so I don't feel that I'm going to be the one who's going to take this to the finish line. You are, and I will be with you through my spirit. But then as the young church gets going, immediately opposition starts coming, and it starts increasing, and it's primarily through the church or the Jewish synagogue. And of course, these Christians were not at this point thinking, well, those are Jews and we're Christians. They were seeing themselves as Jews. And they were historically and traditionally Jewish, and they were simply saying, hey, that which we've been hoping for, the Messiah, the messianic figure who's going to institute God's kingdom here on earth, has come, and it's Jesus. But you have missed it. But yet there is not a sense of, well, we killed him, and now we killed God's plan. But rather, through you killing him, you have now instigated God's plan and fulfilled it in a way that well, possibly, and not even possibly, now we know historically never could have been fulfilled while Jesus was here alive on earth. They said, no, I had to die. I have to go into the ground, become a seed, and out of that seed springs the kingdom that is like a tree of life. And so you get Stephen, who's teaching in one of the synagogues, and he's mentioned just before this as one of the seven deacons who was chosen out of the midst of them to to serve the widows, uh, the Hellenist widows who were uh, not receiving bread and, and were feeling like they were uh, being cheated on. The apostles say, hey, we, we don't have time to continually think of all the little details, so we need to entrust some faithful men, and they choose seven, and they choose Stephen amongst them. 
And then you see Stephen, the first of which is knowing that he is a Hellenist, and that they say that this is the synagogue of the freedmen. Most likely this is a group of Hellenist Jews, Greek-speaking Jews, from all over. They describe them from being from Africa, from Asia Minor, uh, from all over uh, the known world. But they are probably coming from a collection of Jews who were formerly slaves, either historically in Babylon or possibly were very recently freed slave families from Roman families. But they gather together and they form a synagogue. And when, they, when you form a synagogue, there were hundreds of synagogues throughout this time. They were in many ways like the community centers of the Jewish world. I mean, there would be schools that would function out of these. There would be all sorts of political interactions and engagement that would happen out of these. These would even become hostels at times for people to stay if they come into a town and they don't know where else to go. You can go to the synagogue. And they were places where, of course, then teaching happens on their weekly rhythm, uh, just as you can't go to temple to be instructed and to grow and to commune with the rest of the Jewish people. You would go to your regular synagogue. And in this situation, Stephen begins to be accused of two things, speaking against Moses and the law, and that saying that God is going to destroy the temple. And it's most likely very clear what Stephen, though it doesn't say exactly what he's teaching, it's clear just going from out of Luke and out of the other Gospels, he's probably echoing these very regular teachings of Jesus, where Jesus says, hey, I have come to fulfill the law, but in fulfilling it, I am also removing the power of the law. So it is not no longer the law that saves you, as Trevor just sang about and we sang with him. But it is my sacrifice, my atoning work, my blood that cleanses you and saves you. And that, of course, was blasphemous that any one man's blood could do that as the Jews saw it. But then they also say that he's saying that we're going to tear down the temple. And Jesus, of course, said at one point that you can tear down the temple and I'll restore it in three days. Of course, at the moment, they didn't know he was speaking about him. But then he also, in John 4, talks with the woman at the well. And she asked him at one point, hey, our ancestors worship over at this place, and your ancestors worship over that place, but where do we worship? And Jesus says, hey, there's coming a day where it's not about going to a building, but the temple is going to be in the soul and heart of everyone who follows me. That I'm seeking those who worship in spirit and truth. But again, these are major blasphemous acts. And so they trump up charges for Stephen, based off of things that he probably was saying, but not exactly with all the nuance of probably that which he was saying then. And then they ask for Stephen to defend himself. And it's interesting too, I'll say this before we get into his speech, it's interesting as they point out, they're trying to pit Stephen against Moses, that hey, he's speaking against the law. Who gave us the law? Our great leader Moses. And they're trying to say, hey, he's speaking against him. However, the Spirit then takes the moment to equate Stephen with Moses in verse 15, where it says, In gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw his face. It was like the face of an angel. It's hearkening back to the moment where Moses sees the back of God. God Moses says to God, show me your glory. God says, you can't handle that. It's going to you know, make your head explode or something. I don't know. So he puts him in a cleft of a rock, and he says, you can see my back as I pass by. And then Moses goes down from that moment in his face, is shining so much that they have to veil it. And so while they're trying to say this guy's speaking against Moses, the Spirit is trying to indicate, no, I'm working through this man as a new Moses in this moment. 
And then Stephen speaks, which is a Christian band from a decade or two ago. And also, chapter 7, read with me and put on your, your listening ears, as I say to my children. And the high priest said, are these things so? And Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length but promised to give it to him as a possession and his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all, and Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died. He and our fathers and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. And he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. Uh, the Egyptian. He supposed that his brother would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. 
Now when 40 years had passed, the angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals and your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now I, will, I come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt, and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise you up, I'll raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai. And with our fathers, he received living oracles to give it to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses, who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idols and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring, me, uh, bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years of the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Molech and the star of your god, Rephan, and images that you made in worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he spoke to Moses, directed him, uh, directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our father, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they disposed of the nations what God drove, uh, that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God, and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built the house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. And what kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in hearts and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice, and stopped their ears, and rushed together at him. And they cast him out of the city, and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Now this 
chapter is more than just an exercise in like the cliff notes of the Old Testament. Stephen is connecting everything that has been taught of in Jewish history to this moment to make a number of different points. First one, he's he's showing the kingdom of God always goes forward in hardship. It always goes forward in confusing ways. It always goes forward in that which does not evidently make sense to all of us, and therefore, it is easy to miss and reject on the wrong terms. So a couple things. I just want to make application of that. First of which, to you Christian, you will always live a life going forward, pushing the kingdom through hardship and rejection. If that is not your current experience, it likely will be. Unless you're just completely not engaged in the game. If it is currently your experience, you have not been tricked, you have not been cheated, you have not been lied to, and you have not made a wrong turn. It's important for you to hear that because we live indoctrinated in a culture that says that that is the opposite of truth. That if you experience hardship, if you experience suffering, if you experience rejection, then you are likely going the wrong direction. And that's not just culture at large. Sadly, oftentimes, it feels like that is the message of the modern church. And maybe it's not explicitly the message, but there is like maybe an incompleteness sometimes to the message where we show you the Insta story of the missionary, but don't show the suffering and the rejection and the pain they're experiencing on a day-in, day-out basis. Or we show the real beautiful pictures of fostering or adoption, but we don't show the day-in, day-out reality of how that's Yes, beautiful in a really painful way most days. Or we show all the wins of those who were in this relationship where they walked their friend into the gospel and into salvation, but you don't show all the moments of rejection or even the moment where that person in two, five, six, ten years goes off the rails. We like to show you a lot of stories as wins which are very much so in the first act. And truth be told, a lot of times we never circle back to acts two, three, or four because they get really ugly by then and they're not really going to excite anyone and they're certainly not going to help anybody give donations to a cause. But we can tend to believe that's reality And so then we look around at our life if we're experiencing hardship, suffering, rejection, and we say to ourselves, how did I find myself off of the line of God's will? When Stephen is very clear, this has been the MO of God from the very beginning. I mean, I have a host of scriptures 
and I've got, I've got to read them to you because I, I just have to, I have to help us believe that this is not the reality that we've been promised, and it certainly isn't scripturally speaking. John 16, says, I have told you these things so that you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And in James, no, no, 1 Peter 4, 12, it says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice in as much as you participate in sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the spirit of glory and God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God. And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to the faithful creator and continue to do good. Or James 1, 2-4, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that your testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that it may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Acts 14, our very book that we'll get to. Oh, this theme is going to come up a couple times, believe me. Acts 14, 21 through 22. They preached the gospel in the city and won a large number of disciples. Then they turned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging, encouraging them to remain true to the faith. Why? We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Romans 8, 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. The 23rd Psalm, you've read it on every coffee cup and it had it there the whole time. Even though I walk through the, shadow, the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Not they direct me around it. You're there with me in it. 2 Timothy 3.12, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. In Matthew 5.10-12, through 12, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you. People uh, persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they per persecuted the prophets who were before you. Translation on that last part of it, this isn't new. This has been happening. This has not been promised any differently to you. You're not off track. You haven't been lied to, tricked, or, or, or baited and switched. There's a, I was talking with a friend uh, recently about uh, it's the book Changes That Heal. It's written by uh, Dr. Cloud and Townsend, uh, who are maybe most famous for writing the book called Boundaries, which is all about the idea of one of the ways of maturing is, is having boundaries between you and other people. So I am a human. I am my own person. I have my own decisions. I have my own moods. And they're not directly tied to the way that my parents feel in a moment or the way my spouse feels in a way, moment or the way my, my children feel in a moment or, or a friend feels about me in the moment. But in the book Changes the Heal, they expand out 
four major things of, of the four major acts of maturity. They say the first one uh, is, I'm not going to remember the actual word they use for it. It's a single word, but essentially it's accepting love. You have to become a person who can actually accept that you are loved. And that's much harder than it sounds. Most people struggle their entire lives learning to accept being loved and not playing hiding games for their entire lives or trying to just convince themselves that uh, I'm this people, they ex tolerate me, but I'm never actually going to put my whole weight into testing if they love me because I can't handle the rejection if they don't. So I'm going to be a really convenient person to love. I remember somebody looking at me saying, at some point in your life, you exchanged love for respect because it's easier to control. And then you go on to there and you form boundaries. And you form the sense of, I am loved and, oh, I am loved by other people. I am not what other people think of me at any given moment. But then after that, they, they take you to accepting life as good and bad. Because as children, it's 100% or, or nothing. That's why children's moods are so volatile. They are, everything is 100% good or 100% bad. And so... Mommy is 100% good because I got a treat, and she's 100% bad the very next moment because I threw my treat on the floor, and she didn't find that to be couth. And so all of a sudden, mommy is evil. And then she hugs me, and she's 100% good again. And we laugh when we see it in kids. But as adults, we wrestle with the concept that though I'm building the kingdom and though there are moments of joy, it's not 100% good or bad. We accept there's pain and joy. Inside out, the conclusion of the movie, right? Every happy memory is tainted with, uh, with sadness. Every sad memory is tainted with joy. That's accepting the good and the bad. And we can see it there in that fictionalized picture of it, but we wrestle to do it when God says, hey, I've brought you so that you might have life and have it to the full. Through many trials and tribulations, you'll enter the kingdom. I am convinced. You want to know why I'm a Christian? Because of the moment when Jesus looks at the disciples and says, are you going to leave too? And they just say, where else are we going to go? Implied, we, serious question, where could we go? Because this sucks sometimes. But you alone have the words of life. I've looked at a lot of other options. They just don't hold water. Sometimes I wish they did. I wish that I could have an easy life and then just have a meaningless life. But then I say, but there's no life in that, and so eventually I'll come back to the fact that, yeah, you alone got the words of life. Where else am I going to go? I'm back again. I say all this to you because I think this is, a, as I've mentioned many times, Luke as he writes Acts, is paralleling it to his gospel, and I think he's paralleling this moment to a number of them, but one of the moments he's paralleling is in Luke chapter 8, which is the parable of the four soils. 
in which a sower goes out scattering the good news of the kingdom. Some fall upon the road and are eaten up by birds, which Jesus then compares to in his explanation. Those are ones that are just carried away by the evil spirits that don't really ever get a chance to take root. And he says, others fall around the rocky soil, which sprouts up really fast, but then dies because it doesn't have roots. Jesus says, his comparison to that one, is those are like those who hear the word and receive it with joy, but in times of testing, they fall away. They say, I was lied to. I was tricked. I was deceived. Or I made a wrong turn. When Jesus and all of the authors of the scriptures are going out of their way to say none of those things are true. And then he talks about the ones that are scattered amongst the thorns and the thistles who grow up for a while but then eventually get choked out. And he says that those chokings out are like those who all of a sudden get tempted by the, the worries or the pleasures of this world. Because when you're someone who all of a sudden feels like you've been lied to, tricked, or you just look over at something else and you think, like, this isn't, this isn't all good like I thought it is and that looks all good, you're very susceptible. And so I just, I want to bring this before you because it's in the book of Acts and Stephen gives a whole speech about how, hey, people are going to reject the kingdom of God and then he gets stoned to death. And by that, the kingdom then spreads from Jerusalem out to the region and will begin Act 2 and them going outwards. So he says, hey, it's not in spite of death and hardship that the kingdom goes forward. It is the method in which it goes forward. So I just don't want any of us to feel bait and switched five and years from now, 10 years from now. I don't want, I mean, you know, provided, you know, I don't know, 90% of you have got different residencies at that point. I don't know, wherever you're at, I don't want you to feel bait and switch there. But for those of us who you come back or, or we're in this for the next five or 10 years or whatever it is, I want us just to, to look at Acts 7, to look at Acts 14, to look at Luke 8. And when there's pain in the offerings, when there's sowing with weeping, we don't say I was lied to, I was tricked, I made a wrong turn. We accept the good and the bad, and we look at Jesus and we say, where else are we going to go? You alone have the words of life. And we recognize that just like Jesus, or Stephen, as he looks up and he sees a picture of Jesus, he sees in the clouds a sense of glory, and he recognizes that though he is going to experience suffering and pain and even death in the next moment, that he will be vindicated. So much so that he says, hey, don't hold this against them. They don't recognize how much joy I'm heading for. I can't even be mad at them in this moment. Because you will be vindicated. You will be rewarded. The Bible is going to say, you're going to get rewarded even for the cups of cold water you give out in Jesus' name. 
I love that. He's keeping track of the cups of water. There's nothing you do for the kingdom that will not be reward, rewarded ten or a hundredfold. No one's getting cheated. It's just not going to feel like that while we're building it on this side of eternity. And the already not yet. When death is defeated, but is going out swinging. When you pour all your life into somebody, and they eventually just spit at you and wish, wish that you'd die. They'll never know how much you gave. They'll never know how much you sacrificed. No one ever will. And a few will find life in their sacrifice. Many won't. And they'll be very, very angry at you for failures that maybe are true of your humanity, maybe they're not. And in that moment, you want to look and say, I'm doing everything you said, God. What gives? But you have not been tricked. You have not been promised something else. And you have not made a wrong turn. I hope that's more encouraging than it's not. Some days it's not for me, most days it is. I hope this finds you on one that it is. But even if it's not, at least we have each other. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, I, I pray for those who are experiencing this really real this morning because it's not just theoretical or hypothetical, but it's a a painful reality. And I pray, Lord, that you would be through the Spirit encouraging in the words of James that we can consider it pure joy when we experience trials and, and hardships of any kind because they produce perseverance and that perseverance eventually leads to joy and hope that does not put us to shame. And Lord, I pray for those who or even in a place where it's just like, oh, life is, life is good, and I even feel worried about that. Like, am I not doing it right? But rather know that they would experience that as a joy and a gift in this moment, that so much of life is a season of joy and rest, but it's just preparing us for them these moments. That you are very clear, happen on the regular. But Lord, I do pray for those who find themselves just saying, like, I've never really experienced that, and they might examine the sense of, like, am I actually in the game of building the kingdom? Am I actually sowing in a way that I might actually experience weeping while I sow? Or am I not weeping because I'm doing no sowing? And Lord, I pray for wherever we are, in any of those buckets or one that I haven't mentioned, that we would hold up the fact that we have each other in this moment. We have the ability to work together as a people of God, building and holding each other accountable and holding each other to the fire and holding each other when we want to run away, but we can yell at each other, at each other's backs of like, where else are you going to go?
and that through the trials and tribulations and ups and downs and rejections and suffering, we might enter into glory as a people who were a part of building eternity in Indianapolis in the teens and the 20s and however else long you get us together. In Jesus' name, amen.